This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. Romans. Romans. What's the letter of Romans for? Why did, why did Paul write it? What's going on in Rome? Who's he writing to? Who's Paul? We've been looking at this thing uh, for the last couple of months. We're going to take this whole school year and grow uh, as students of Romans. Right now, Rome was the biggest city, the most influential city of that time. Right? It was the biggest powerhouse from a military standpoint. It was a cultural center. It was a financial center. It was a place of uh, pagan hedonism from a sexual perspective. It was the place uh, where all the action was going on. And yet, within the, within the city of Rome, there is this small group of people who have said, we are going to follow Jesus. We're going to give our lives to Christ, and we're going to pursue him, and we're going to follow him. And so this community of believers has set up camp in this city, and they're seeking to serve in the shadow of the empire. And Paul who longs to see them, longs to be with them, and to go to Rome, writes them this letter. Now, we know that eventually Paul was able to make it to Rome, but it's an astounding thing when you think about it, because at the time, Rome was the most powerful city probably on earth, at least in the the Mediterranean area. And there's this tiny band of Christians who are trying to struggle and to live by faith in what seems to be a broken world to them. And we know the history of Rome, right, since this letter was written to them. Evidently, God used this letter, the Apostle Paul, their faithfulness, their generosity, their sacrificial way of life, through the power of the Holy Spirit to revolutionize not only that city, to be essentially the epicenter of the Christian faith for a thousand years in the whole Mediterranean, I would argue, the entire world. And so sometimes we feel as Christians, we go, oh, you know, the culture and I, where, you know, what's happening in the world. And this whole uh, beginning of the, uh, the year, we looked at the seven sisters, the churches in Revelation, and all the struggle and the problems even within the church and without of the church. And we can become discouraged and feel defeated. And yet here is this tiny band of people seeking to be faithful. And God used them to transform the world. What might God do through our individual lives? In the big things, changing the culture? And in the smaller things, helping husbands and wives sacrificially love one another, working in forgiveness in uh, the context of work relationships, helping neighbors uh, lay down their lives to serve neighbors in, in sometimes small ways. It's all those little things and all those big things. The, the, the mundane and the monumental are the things that God uses to transform cultures one person at a time, one action at a time. And so the reason we're studying this is because we want to see this letter that Paul used, that the Holy Spirit used, to transform the world. Because wouldn't you like to see a transformed world where people were pursuing and following Jesus with their heart, soul, mind, and strength? I would. So let's dig into this text. This is a challenging text for us. This morning, it is a challenging text. So let's open our Bibles, turn to God's Word, read it, try to understand it. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. This is the Word of God. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. 
As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We ask God your blessing and your grace to be upon us, that you would give us your mercy and your joy, and your fellowship, and that we would hear these words not as a condemnation, but as an opportunity to learn who we are and who we are to be pointed toward so that we might find joy and hope and love in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, some years ago, I got a bad diagnosis, and I've shared this with a few of you. I was in my room reading one night, and the lights were down, and it just so happened I, I was reading my Bible. I don't read my Bible all the time, but I read it, and I was happened to be reading. And for the purpose of this illustration, it's great that I was actually you know, reading my Bible. And I was reading it, and I was sitting in the chair, and the lights were down low, and I just kind of looked at it, and I thought, man, I can't really see these letters so well. And I just happened to extend my hand out a little bit, and all of a sudden, everything became clear, and I screamed, No! It happened. Presbyopia. Presby, elder, opia, sea-like, sea-like an old man. That's what it's called. Now I see like an old man, hence because I am an old man. And I realized this is going to dramatically affect my life, right? I, I don't have my readers. Where are my readers? You know why? Because I actually have a prescription set of contacts in so that I can read my sermon from the notes and not do this a million times. I can't see anybody in the back row anymore. I used to be able to pierce you with my eyes, but now you're all fuzzy back there so that I can read this sermon. I can't see what's going on right in front of my face, but I have 20-10 vision at a distance. Figure that out. I don't know. Well, I have learned about it because, of course, I've told you I do these uh, uh, clinical studies for drops. They're coming up with a drop to fix this thing, this plague on our culture, presbyopia. You can put a drop in your eye and it fixes the lens that gets hard in your 40s that makes it hard for you to see up close. But isn't it amazing the whole idea of glasses, right? Those of you that wear glasses, that rely on glasses or contacts, like you can put a lens either actually in your eye or over your eye to allow you to see clearly. I mean, that's an amazing thing. How did someone figure that out anyway? Have you ever thought about that? Well, we just happen to have this glass, and oh, by the way, I can see clearly through the glass. Someone figured that out, and, they, and so it's, just a, it's an amazing thing to me. And here's the thing with vision problems. When you have vision problems, you address it. Right? You go to the doctor because you 
are realizing, I can't see as well. I can't read. I can't see things far away. You go to the doctor to address it. Isn't it funny how vision problems, no one is like, come on, you need to go to the doctor to get seen about your vision. You better take care of that. No, when people have vision problems, they go deal with it. How many of us have heard from our doctor, you know, you should eat more vegetables. Ah, I'm going to have a Twinkie instead. How many of us say, well, the doctor says, well, you need to reduce stress in your life. Ah, no, I got to get this work done. You should probably be resting more. I know, but there's so much to do. We can easily ignore these other medical problems in all different sources, but when it comes to vision, we want to see clearly. Don't you? Well, the verses that Paul gives to us today from the Old Testament give us a clear picture of who we are. A clear picture. And don't we, as citizens of this world, as people who want to see the culture transformed, don't we need to see the truth about who we are? Because, you know, if we live in a world, in our own minds, that's not based on the truth, then we're not going to function well in our lives. We're going to experience challenges and difficulty. Right now, so if your eyesight gets so bad, you need a cane so that you don't bump into something. If our spiritual eyesight is bad, not only are we going to be bumping into things, we're going to be falling over things and falling off of things, and our lives are not going to be able to be faithful to be able to renew the culture. So we want to get an accurate picture of what, who we are. So there are different lenses that we can use to understand the world, to have what's called a biblical worldview. Now, if you don't know what a worldview is, think of it as it's the set of lenses that you look at when you see the world, you look through. Everyone has a biblical world, everyone has a worldview. Some people have a biblical worldview, other people don't. But it's a set of lenses. And in general, our worldview is created within us, hopefully with Scripture, but oftentimes by a lot of things that aren't biblical. Right? Maybe we've been in a relationship that was really difficult. Some people have experienced trauma or abuse. Well, that impacts the way we see the world, sometimes in ways that are unhealthy. Maybe you took a, a class on Eastern religions or on psychology, and those things impact your view of the world. The question for us is, as people who are followers of Jesus is, how do we want to understand the world? Do we want to understand this, the world through the lens of what the Bible teaches or with all this hodgepodge of stuff? You know, I saw friends on an episode of Friends one time, and Joey said this, and so I think that's how the world works. Like, Joey? Define, hey, how you doing? How, is he, is he in, in, informing your worldview? We let TV shows that we've watched, the music that we listen to, the culture that we live in, bad advice from our mom or dad impact who we are. So as followers of Jesus, more and more we want to be driven by a biblical worldview. So one lens that we can wear is the question of God. Right? I would guess, I would imagine that most of the people listening to me believe that God exists. Right? You believe that God exists. Maybe are you living a surrendered life to Jesus? I don't know, but we believe that God exists, otherwise we wouldn't be in a church gathering in this way. But there are many people in our world that don't believe that God exists. They are atheists, right? Atheists. Or there are polytheists that believe that there are millions and millions of gods. Or there are pantheists that believe that the whole world is God. And we just need to find God within us. Well, there's a tendency, though, for us who believe in one God, revealed in three persons, 
to kind of fall into the trap of believing that, well, I just got to find the good that's within me. That's a, te- a trap for us. So one lens is, what do you say about God? Another lens is, where does truth come from? When you try to interpret the world, you want to have, when you want to see clearly, you want to have lenses that are your prescription. Where does truth come from? Does it come from tradition? Does it come from science? Does it come from self-discovery? Is it from a sacred writing? From where does truth come? Or maybe truth is just relative. Each person gets to make up their own truth. People love to say these days, find your own truth, or this is my truth. What if someone says, my truth is two plus three equals four? That's a bad truth. For you math teachers and students, that's a bad truth. Here's another lens. And you maybe have heard someone say this to you before. I'm basically a good person. Maybe you've said that before. I'm basically a good person. This question, this lens deals with how do we define humanity? Where do we stand? Are we more good than bad? Are we a basically good person? Or are we broken and sinful? And the Bible speaks to that reality. And that's the focus of this week's message. What does the Bible say about who we are? We want to learn what the Bible says about who we are so that we can have the right lens with which to see the world, so we can see the world clearly. And we humble ourselves before Scripture because we believe that it's, it's true. If you want to do a subject, a sermon on where do we find truth, that's a different Sunday. But this one is, how do we understand human nature? People will say this, I'm basically a good person. And that means that a good person is someone who generally does the right thing. I'm a generally nice person. I don't commit crimes, not most crimes anyway. Speeding is a subjective thing, even though there's a speed limit. I do commit that, but I'm basically a good person, right? Because so you if you're basically a good person, you get to decide which of the laws you actually want to enforce and which ones that you don't want to enforce, right? Speeding, totally subjective. Speed as much as you want, right? If you're basically a good person. Here's the, here's the fascinating thing about this. But the people who are in charge decide what the penalties are for different crimes, right? I read a book when I was in college called Elite Deviance, and it was written in the, in the late 80s, and it, it talks about how uh, the power structures determine the penalties for di- different crimes. So, for example, uh, the leaders of Enron can steal $80 billion from people and from the economy and get a slap on the wrist. But if you go into a convenience store and you have a weapon in your pocket and you say, I'm going to rob this convenience store and you steal 30 bucks, you can do life in prison. Did you realize that the the penalties for powder cocaine and crack cocaine, the very same drug, just in different levels of concentration, are radically different? So if you're in charge and you're in charge of your life, asterisk, Jesus actually is, God actually is, but if you think you're in charge of your life, then you get up to make the rules. But here's what Paul is saying to us. It's not actually how it works. And here's the thing. In knowing how it works, according to the Word of God, there's a blessing and a joy and a life that is found in understanding how it works. And so that's what we want to do. You see, basically good people are just comparing themselves to other people who are basically worse than they are. 
I love the word basically in that sentence because it just gives me freedom to be able to say, well, I'm better than him at this and I'm not going to talk about the other stuff. I'm going to leave that out. Remember we talked about this in Romans chapter 2 where it says, you who judge others. We use a certain standard which is really high for other people and when we judge ourselves, we lower the standard really lowly. But Paul also talks about those who would walk away from the law of God. In chapter 1, we talked about that. Those who would throw off all of God's ordained laws. But you can't do that. Right? I've said this before, but like, you don't break the law of gravity. The law of gravity breaks you. If you stand on a building, I don't believe in the law of gravity, and I'm going to jump off, what happens? You magically float in the air because you don't believe in the law of gravity. No. You jump off and you go down. Because the law of gravity is a law. And God's word is a law. It's just that we don't often experience the consequences of our actions until later on. And so Paul is saying to them, here, let's look at verse, uh, verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. See, here's this tendency for us to compare ourselves, right? So the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews in general are the ones that have the law. They're members of the covenant family, which we talked about last week. The Gentiles are those who don't have the law, who aren't members of the covenant family. And there's a tendency for those who have the word of God to say, well, look, I've got this figured out and you don't. And what Paul is saying is that we're no different. Those who have the law, those who are part of the, the covenant, who are part of the church, who are members in good standing at Woodland Presbyterian Church, we're no better off than the Gentiles, than those who are far away from God. Why? He says, as it is written, verse 10. Now this begins a section of Romans where Paul is listing quotes from the Old Testament. And just a little sidebar right here. This helps us to understand how important the Old Testament was to Paul. Sometimes there's this view in the church, well, the Old Testament is the Old Covenant, the New Testament is for the church, and so we should ignore or throw off the Old Testament. But if you read Paul, if you study what he's saying, if you just look at where the, it depends on what kind of Bible you have, but like yours, mine's in quotes, right? And you look down at the bottom, there's all these notes, it's referring to Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and Psalms. You're seeing right there that Paul is making his case from the Old Testament. It's the most important thing to him besides his relationship with God and Jesus Christ. So it should be important to us. Paul is making his case to the Jews and the Gentiles about who we are. And so here's where he reveals to us the problem. We're entering into point two on the sermon outline, if you're interested. That was the point. Here's the problem. First, he quotes Ecclesiastes 7.20. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. Think about the overarching concern of the book of Ecclesiastes is one about the vanity of the human heart. We always are pursuing all these things, and it's vanity. Paul begins with Ecclesiastes. Then he quotes Psalm 14 and 53, which are essentially the same psalms. They're nearly identical. They describe the Lord looking down on his people, seeking to understand. He says, verse 11, No one understands. No one seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Okay, so let's just hit a pause here for a second. All right, so we can see very clearly, <laughs> whether you're wearing glasses or not, that Paul has, is coming to a position on what he thinks about humanity. Paul's case is being made that humanity is broken. He's not saying, well, we're basically good people or we're perfected. He is saying clearly, and he's repeating what the Old Testament says, 
that people are not righteous. That's what the Bible says. That's what Christianity is putting forth. So if you hear someone say, basically I'm a good person, if you're saying, basically I'm a good person, according to Paul, according to the Old Testament, you do not have a biblical view of yourself or that person. What does it say on? How does he keep going? He keeps making his case. He keeps going through the Old Testament. He talks about what sin, what being unrighteous does to a person. Because we've been corrupted at our core, what comes out of us reflects what is in us. And this is reflective of what Jesus says. It's not what goes into the man that defiles him, but what comes out. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So here, I'm going to just kind of try to give you an example of how I think this lives itself out in the, in the real world. How I am, I'm, I'm in agreement with Paul, and I'm trying to convince you to be in agreement with Paul. But here's a question for you. How many of you who were parents ever had to teach your children to be mean? How many of you had to sit down and say, okay, look, I, You're not really getting this. What you want to say to her in this moment is, you're stupid. You have to, and the thing is, you don't just say it like, hey, you're stupid. You want to say it harsh, and you want to say it mean right to her face because what she did, because she passed the salt in the wrong way, is you are stupid because you're trying to get her to feel the depth of her stupidity in this moment. So let's try it again. Come on, let's practice, kids. Come on, everybody. On three. One, two, three. You're stupid. That's... There's no feeling in that. There's nothing there. On three, again. One, two, three. That's a little better. We're going to work on that for the next week. That is not what we do with our children, right? Because guess what? They already know how to do it. They know how to do it. They know how to say it. It comes naturally. It's the overflow of who they are. And not to pick on our kids, it's the overflow and said, he's stupid, she's stupid, or whatever else word that may or may not begin with the letter S, or whatever, right? We, we say these things. Now, here's the deal. Thing, people do stupid things. There's no doubt about that. But so do I. We all do. The point that I'm making is it's a natural thing. And why is it natural? My argument would be to go back to the Old Testament to say that Adam and Eve, our first parents, when they sinned, they separated themselves from God. And we, as their descendants, inherited that relationship. Therefore, as we use these words, as we say these things, as we sin against one another, it's the natural part of who we are. We weren't created in that way. We were made for dignity. We were made to speak our words to praise the living God and to encourage one another. But because of the sinful nature of who we are, it's what comes out. I mean, think about that picture. The venom of asps is under our lips. I mean, how many of us this week have used words that are poisonous to our relationships, to the very people that live in our home? The people that we're in the closest relationship with, they're the ones that bear the brunt of our worst words because we're so close and they make us so frustrated. We can so easily use the harshest words that we have for the people that we live with or that are in our family or that we share a city with or that we share a country with. It's so easy for us to do that because we have venom 
under our tongues because of the sin that's in our hearts. He continues. It's going to get good later on, I promise. But we got to deal. We want to see the world and ourselves for what we are. Verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. How many of us are swift to pile on, to say, yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely, that's right. Instead of to say, well, you know, I think it'd probably be better for me to understand that person's point of view before I made categorical statements about their stupidity. Because you know what? I wouldn't want them to think I'm stupid because I've come to my conclusions based on data, based on information, and based on my own story. And I recognize that, that I can make mistakes, but I wouldn't want to be called stupid. We're swift to punish and to hurt and to harm, to the shedding of blood, to allow our brothers and sisters to be harmed and hurt and harried. There is no fear of God before their eyes. How quickly we move to do that. You know, it's interesting to me, and this is not just with our language, but there's been a, a downward trend since the 90s of violent crimes. But in the last couple of years, that number has been on the increase. I, I read an article yesterday that said that there are nurses now that have panic buttons because so many patients are threatening them. Like, that's not how it's supposed to be. There's violence in our city. The murder rate, violent crime, domestic abuse, Spiritual abuse, all those things are prevalent in our world. It's hard. It's just like the book of Judges, right, where they, the writer of Judges says, everyone was doing right in their own eyes. It's really hard. And so why is Paul doing this? Why is he being so mean to us this morning with this text? I thought this was a love letter, Pastor Matt. You said this was a love letter at the beginning of the sermon series. But here's the truth. It's the truth. And if you go around thinking you're basically a good person, you've got a real problem because you're not. And there was a long time in my life when I believed that too. I'm basically a good person. I'm not doing all the bad stuff. You talk about violent crimes. I haven't beat anybody up, not at least since college anyway. Come on. Just, it was a fight, you know. Not a big deal. No broken bones. I'm not a basically good person. And see, when I compare myself to someone else, I can always rationalize that I am a good person. And that's what the Jews were doing. But I shouldn't be comparing myself to other people. Who should I be comparing myself to? Jesus. My life will be held to account by God based on what Jesus is and what he has done. Look at that last, uh, or verse 19. Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, meaning you and I, we're under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, right? All the venom that's coming out will be stopped because when I stand before God, I've got to make an account of every single thing that I've said. And the whole world will be accountable to God, verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law that Paul is giving to us, we are aware of our sin. And what does that do? It makes us wrecked. We realize, I am broken, I am sinful, I am in need. And so who do I turn to? Where do I go to find the words of life? I go to Jesus. And you see, Paul continues to pour out this argument about those who are under the law. Yes, we were designed for dignity, but wow, we've really messed it up. And so we need someone, not from within, but from without, to come down and to enter in 
to the pain and the struggle and the sorrow. You see, it is a love letter because it's telling us the truth about who we are. And the truth is not a concept. The truth is not just some idea. It's a person. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. The truth is a person. And he's a horribly beautiful person, right? Horrible in the sense that when I look at Jesus' life, and I just see how patiently he dealt with the really stupid people in his life, how he loved them, and he cared for them, and he encouraged them. I realized, thank you, Jesus, for dealing with me. How did you love people in the way that you did? How were you so patient and kind? How were you so passionate about justice for the poor and for the oppressed? Right? Think about what Jesus does. He enters into this world, not out of obligation, not like, oh, God, I know you gave me this assignment, and I got to go down there and get those people, but willingly, gladfully, joyfully entering into time and space in his humiliation, it's called, right? His exaltation in his humiliation. He humbled himself. He allowed him to be, himself to be humiliated. Why? Out of love, out of his grace, out of his mercy for people like you and me. That's astounding. When I think about how far I can be from God, Jesus continues to pursue me and to follow me and to love me. And he does this for all of the outsiders. I mean, think about this. When he sees the leper, the person who has a disease, a disgusting disease that nobody wants to associate with, he goes towards them and he touches them with his hand. When he sees the crowd, he has compassion on them. When his friends bring, when, when, when friends bring a paralyzed brother to Jesus, he sees the faith of the friends and he says to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. And then he heals him. He feeds the sick. He has compassion on the poor. He weeps with those who are in sorrow. He wipes away tears. He goes to the broken, to the outsider. He, he goes to the morally disgusting, socially reviled, those who are inexcusable, those who should never receive anything good, Jesus goes to them. He actually gravitates towards the broken people of this world. His enemies actually say about him, he's a friend of sinners, as though it's bad. And yet it's something for us in which to rejoice because that's what I am. And it's the very center of who he is. It's not just something like, oh, I've come to make myself glorified. And by the way, you people, I'll deal with you. No, he feeds the poor. It's his purpose to care, to love, to go toward those who no one wants to go toward. It's the very purpose of his life. I mean, just think about this. Just as a way of illustrating this. What do you do with your nicest clothes? And I'm talking like even above a church level nice. Like, y'all look nice today. Let me just say, everyone looks nice. A couple wrinkles out there here and there, but, you know, we look nice. But, like, I'm talking go to a wedding nice. You got your suit, you pull it down, you hang it. You might even put it in a bag in your closet. What about a wedding dress? Like, that's the ultimate gown that a woman buys, and you save up a lot of money, you spend more money on that dress, and you wear it, and you look beautiful, and it's a glorious thing. It's you know, just whatever design it is, it's the dress that you picked out and you take care of it. Some people spend as much money preserving a wedding gown as they do on an outfit. It's a couple hundred bucks to put that thing in a box and up in a closet. Why? 
Because it's a precious garment that means something. It stands for something. It's a special moment in time. And what do we do? We take care of it. We don't spill red wine all over it and eat chocolate chip cookies or nachos. Uh-uh. Oh, well, sorry, I got some nacho cheese on your wedding dress. Uh, no big deal. We preserve it, we care for it, because we don't want it to be damaged. That's the point. You're not going to say to your husband, hey, look, oh, you need an oil rag? Here, try this. You're washing the car? This thing absorbs a ton of water. Why don't you use it? You protect it. You preserve it. Why? Because it represents purity and beauty. And you see, brothers and sisters, what Jesus does is he enters into our lives as the bridegroom, and he sees us as his church, stained, broken, damaged, abused, self-abusing in all those ways. And he comes down and he says, will you marry me? Will you be in relationship with me? Will you come to be in my family? Will you come and enter in to this fellowship with me? Will you partake with me in this meal, in this supper? See, the, the, the supper is the, it's the wedding supper of the Lamb. Right? It's this massive feast that's celebrating the unity between the church and the groom, Jesus and his bride, and he purifies us. He makes us whole. He makes us beautiful. And so then what is our response to that? It's to rejoice. It's to celebrate. He picked me. I'm on the team. I'm in the family. I'm embraced. I'm loved. Even though I'm not worthy, I've been brought in. That sets me free from sin, from death, from all my stupidity, all the dumb things that I've said. Jesus says, I forgive you. I love you. You're mine. Come into my family. Be part of my family. And guess what? While you have this precious little bit of time left on this earth before we gather in this family, go invite some other guests. Go tell other people what it's like to be in my family, what it's like to experience forgiveness, what it's like to be embraced and to be loved. Go and bring them in. It's an open invitation. It doesn't cost anything except your very life. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.